Baseball season's almost here, and there's never been a better time to check out DraftKings.com, America's favorite daily fantasy baseball site, where you could win huge cash prizes every day. Daily fantasy means no season-long commitment. Every time you play, it's like a new season. Head to DraftKings.com now and use code ATHLETE to play for free in the opening day $100,000 fantasy baseball contest. First place takes home ten grand. Enter ATHLETE for free entry now at DraftKings.com. That's DraftKings.com. And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. I just want to start off again by saying thank you guys for all the emails you've been sending me at themomentbk at gmail.com. I love getting your letters. I respond to everyone. It may take me some time, but I always do respond. Uh, you can write me anything that you want to ask about or, or talk about as long as you don't send me a screenplay, an idea for a screenplay, a television show. Those... They'd go right in the trash. But everything else I read, I think about, I respond to. So thanks for leaving reviews and ratings at the iTunes store. That's really helpful, and I appreciate that too. Today's guest is Danny Strong. Danny is a friend of mine, um, which is always uh, interesting to me in a certain way because he made a huge life transition. And uh, he's a screenwriter, an extraordinarily successful screenwriter. Uh, He started, he had... Movies like Recount and Game Change on HBO. He won Emmy Awards for both of those. He wrote the latest Hunger Games movie. He wrote The Butler. Many more. But he started out as an actor. He's still acting. You've seen him uh, on Mad Men. I think he did like seven or eight episodes of Mad Men. You've seen him on Girls. Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And his story, um, how he changed his life and became a writer is one that I've long been interested in. He's a great guy, one of the nicest guys in the business, but also very uh, and funny, but a very serious dude in, in the way that he approaches all of this. So uh, I'm excited to have him here. I think you'll really dig it. And uh, Danny Strong will be walking in the door any second. Thanks for listening. All right, good. Danny, Danny Strong is here. Um, I, I rattled off some of your credits before you walked in. I did like the little intro ahead of time. Okay. So I don't feel That's embarrassed exciting. you with your credits. So this way they're primed. They're primed. They're ready to They're go. primed and ready to hear. And I told them you had a great story. So don't disappoint Oh, I got us. a great story. Which one? Well, I think your entire life. Okay. From beginning. I was born. Well, maybe that's not where we want to go. June 6th in Harbor City. All right, go ahead. Maybe we should start with the fact, you know, it's always funny for me when I get to interview my friend, you know, friends of mine, but uh, I mean, one of the great things about it to me is I get to then sort of maybe ask you things. That I kind of know a little bit, but that, like, if we're just sitting and having lunch, I'm not going to really, like, dive into. So. Sure, because it's weird, because we're having lunch and hanging out, and it's not going to turn it into a podcast. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of why I started doing this, because I realized I'd be really curious about things and want to dive in. But it's hard. There's six people at the table. We're in a yoga place. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Not doing yoga. Not doing yoga, but we, yeah. Maybe you're doing yoga. Are we discussing writing in yoga c- coffee shops? Well, we can, which I didn't think of until I just looked at you. But it's one of the things I wrote down was that, um, and we'll get to it, is that you enjoy writing, sometimes kind of surrounded by people. Always. Yeah. I always have to write in environments where there are people around, where there's white noise around. Because if I'm writing in my apartment by myself, I get nothing done. I start to zone out. I think I'm, you know, I'm slight ADD. So I think that's part of the slight ADD-ness is a quiet you know, silent space 
is death for me in creativity. I need to be surrounded by people. I need noise around. And I put a pair of headsets on so the noise – so it becomes white noise and it's very productive. But you like to be around actual people you know too, right? Like you like to invite – friends around yeah, and then sure. have everybody put their own headphones on and do their work and then you just like the kind of what, what does it makes you feel like at least there's the option if you're bored to get out of the boredom sure well you know i i write you know i write in coffee shops all over manhattan and i also write quite frequently at the soho house you're like a walking talking modern edward hopper painting it, exactly Danny. exactly and so i what i do is i i email people and i tell them where i'm writing and they can join if they want. And, and you are an individual that I've emailed to tell you where I, I was writing. I love getting those emails. And although they are, in a way, it is like postcards from somebody in Paris or something. Because, like, I have, you know, I, it's like, <laughs> oh, look, Danny's writing. Uh, he found this nook at the coolest yoga place in New York where they have this little cafe. And he's writing there with his friends. And it is like you're in France. Yeah. Sipping. It's kind of what I'm going for, though, a little bit. Where there's, is, like, a right? salon it quality is. to this. Where it's, like, these artists where we can all assemble and we can all write together. Together. And uh, it's so funny because, you know, Judd Apatow used to come and all he would do is talk and tell stories. And they're amazing stories because it's Judd Apatow, right? The center of American comedy for the last 15 years. But literally after three hours, you start to say to yourself, you know, I actually have to get something done. Did, did you take Judd off your email list? Judd's out. Judd's Judd dead to me. No, Apatow is he, uh, off the Danny he's, Strong he's, list. He's off the list. But literally, he came, and he came two days straight, and starting the first day, he basically started with the stories that he had ended with the day before. And I said to him, I said, Judd, man, I got to start working. And he's so respectful. And he goes, yes, of course, of course. So I put my headset on, and literally, he just turned to the guy next to him and just went right into started another story. Started immediately off. Yeah. yeah. And it's too distracting, because obviously, the guy's too good at it. Yo, know, the stories are hilarious, and he's a really great guy, and it's super fun. Uh, but definitely, it was a day killer. No, and it, it is gross. Say, like uh, yesterday, I walked in or the day before to sell a house to work and uh, or to meet somebody, and I saw you there, and it was like, oh, this is fun. I have to remember to do this more when I don't have a deadline. Yeah, that's well, when it's well. It's I've, the people that come regularly. It's perfectly productive for them. It's not as if it's some big social hour. It's everyone sits and you start writing and then sure you'll talk for about five minutes or ten minutes and then it just sort of organically and everyone starts sure. writing and then when it's around lunchtime, it's perfect because you can all have lunch together and everyone no, sort that's of eats great. together and then you keep writing. No, I love that you built, I mean I'm always very interested in how people build a, you know, build like sort of their productive creative routine mm -hmm. and so obviously you figured out what that was for you. Uh, I'm too, I get too distracted. It's all too hard for me. I also really do the best that I do early, uh, you mm -hmm. know, as part of like this whole, like the way that I do my whole morning is all geared towards just finding a way to get like a little runway going and then try to get somehow, you know, take off and get in the air a little bit. And so, so what's your ritual? How do you start? Like, what's what begins you to get that runway going, and then what well, finally I, gets you over the hump where you actually start writing? Well, you know, it's I I finally have sort of figured out if there are years. I mean, for me, it's meditation, and then I do morning pages, and I take a long walk, mm -hmm. and then at the end of all that stuff, I'm I'm there at my desk, and I'm kind of like primed to do the thing that I want to do most of the time. But you know, then there's a lot of like walking around, pacing. Music is a huge part of it for me. Mm -hmm. I know that it is for you too. Mm -hmm. But I can. Um, when I'm writing with Dave, it's less about the music and more about the two of us kind of locking in on an idea. But um, I like that. It's intense. It, it is. And then, it starts with yoga. I mean, not yoga. Not yoga. No yoga. That, that hurt. And then hurt. walking. But, yeah, meditation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Walking. Morning pages. Because and I, morning pages, what, three pages? Yeah. Uh, then when that's I the get artist's all that way, stuff done, three pages yeah. type thing? Yeah. And it's a stream of consciousness? Uh-huh. Uh -huh. You don't do that? No. 
you can just like how do you? I, I was part of what I want to ask you because look, you didn't start as you didn't start out saying I'm going to be a screenwriter. No, you were an actor. Actor. So just let's back up a little bit and okay. talk about where where you came from and what your sort of childhood was like because you started acting pretty young, right? Well, or in I'm, high school or college? Yeah, high school. I wasn't a child actor, but I did high school theater. And it was religiously. It's what what, what I was into in high school. And, and where'd was, you grow up? Uh, Manhattan Beach, California. The rough and tumble streets of Manhattan Beach. Sure. Dangerous, dangerous area. What's great about Manhattan Beach is it has um, none of the culture of New York nor of L.A. Uh, that's true. It's, it's a pure beach existence. And by the way, the Manhattan Beach of my youth is very different than Manhattan Beach now. It's, it's pretty wealthy now. But when I was a kid, it was very middle class, lower middle class beach bungalows. So were there artists around you? No. No, it was it was a beach culture. It was surfers and stoners and volleyball players. Would people have like um, beach residences who were Hollywood people or no? Because uh, now some people do. They go there. Is may, it was it not like that really? Yeah, not really. I I, I don't. You know, it, there were some athletes. You know, a, f- a few of the Lakers had houses there. A few of the the L.A. Raiders, when there was the L.A. Raiders, had houses there. But I don't remember much of an entertainment industry presence. Um, you know, it, like I said, it was very middle class, except for the homes actually on the beach, and those were very expensive homes. And that was so maybe some entertainment industry people had their their beach house right on the water. Were there examples around you of people who had become actors or filmmakers who had done this, or had the, had you remember how the idea b- began for you? No, I de- I literally it was something that I always was wanted to be since I was five years old. I wanted to be an actor. And there was no influence. It was just something that I just knew that I wanted to do. And I remember when I was eight years old, I would write letters to agents. I would write letters to the William Morris agency and send my picture. And um, and to Harry Gold because he was remember he was a famous agent because his daughter was Tracy he had Tracy and Missy Gold and they were famous I mean I don't I believe yeah, yeah. I believe you but so no I mean I, I would know send that them letters all. yeah I would send them letters and I would wait for the response and every day I would come home waiting for the mail to see if William Morris was going to write type, me back would you type these no they were handwritten. And, and by the way, they never responded, and that is why to this day I still won't sign with William Morris because I'm still bitter. I, I understand yeah, why yeah, you're bitter. Yeah, a lot of anger. So you wrote handwritten letters to these two people? Yes, and I think one other agency. With a photo? I believe I sent a photo. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I believe I sent so. a photo. That's boundless optimism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, did you, so you, and, then, you, and it was crushed by the industry. Did, did your parents like get you a stamp and mail it? Or you think you did that? Was it a stealth operation or did you no, include my mom your family, your mother? Oh, yeah. My mom helped me because I remember asking her who, you know, I want an agent. Who would I go with? And she said, well, the William Morris agency, because that was the most famous That's agency That's just what she'd heard about. Yeah, she knew of the William Morris agency and she knew of Harry Gold. Because his daughter was Tracy and Missy Gold. So, uh, and I think there was one more. And she got, I remember she got the addresses for me. And she looked them up in the phone book. I said, I want to send them letters. And, um, and, uh, and we, and, you know, we sent some blind submissions to William Morris and, and Harry Gold. And do you remember, and did you think you said, like, I'm an actor, I could be, do you? I don't remember the content of the letters. What, what, you think you were trying to get them to represent you to send you out on auditions? Yes. Oh, yeah, that I knew. What were you watching then? Like, who were the actors you were? I watched so much television as a kid because my mom was a telephone operator. And so I was, um, and she worked, and I was just, I was alone. Was she the one who raised you? No, your yes, dad wasn't yeah, around. Yeah, my dad, they were divorced. My dad was around, and he was a very nice guy. But I just, I lived with my mom and my sister. 
in Manhattan Beach, and my sister was five years older than me. She's in the booth right now. Um, so it was. We're in the booth. She's like in the outer. She's room. in the outer outer room. Yeah. And um, and so I would, uh, you know, I was I was just home alone all the time, and I would just watch tons of television. And I think uh, I remember different strokes and silver spoons and the facts of life were like the show. And you thought I can do that thing. I, instantly. I remember instantly thinking I could do that and I, I want to do that. I remember thinking I could do better, too. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Well, like, being seven years old, thinking, you know what, I think I can do better than these That's guys. a real screenwriter thing to think, <laughs> even though it was manifesting towards actors. Yeah. It was like, oh, you know what, that's not as good as it could be. Yeah, That's not yeah. what it would be if I were. If yeah, I, were to... I think I would add more depth and layers to Silver Spoons. And you think you were, you were six, seven years old? Six, Said... seven, eight years old. And did you have a lot of friends then? Yeah, yeah. I wasn't a lonely child. You know, Manhattan Beach, and I think during the time period... It was just, uh, you know, kids were left alone then in the way that they aren't now. And I had a bicycle, and I remember me and my friends, we'd ride bikes and play sports and ride around. And it was a real, when I look back upon it, a real kind of community-type environment to grow up in. It's not a city. You're not part of the city. You're in a very um, quiet suburb. Yeah. And so you would be able to, like, you could uh, go after school, get on your bike, see your friends, then come home. and But then you'd be home where your mom would be working, you'd be watching television. Exactly. That, you make your own dinner, or would she uh, left no, something she would, for you? No, she would usually leave dinner that was pre-made, or such a detailed question, I love it, or she would leave, which I preferred, would leave $10 so I could order Domino's pizza. Right. So that was sort of the... Well, do you ever have like lonely nights where you order Domino's now in Manhattan? Does Domino's still good with for you? With a glass of wine, I, like, I light a Dom- candle. No, it's just I you put know, on some blues. What, yeah, because that's what I'll know. I probably from that you probably put on disco from put the on disco. Era, you put yeah. on like uh, the Saturday Night Fever exactly. uh, uh, album, which I'm sure you were listening to back then. But no, uh, you know, sometimes um, there are certain things that maybe aren't intrinsically good, but they're good to us because they meant something when we were young. Yeah. So like, if Domino's was a special thing. I Domino's has not had that sentimentality that. for me. No, right. that you speaks know, to you know honestly uh, taste. Yeah, so I think good. I think the only thing that I like still does for Manhattan Beach is Manhattan Beach Mexican food. There's something about South Bay Mexican food that it has its own taste. That's that still I recognize as sort of my own taste buds is what I prefer. No, I remember in college there was a, a period of time in college where I was going through a really bad time. I'd had a terrible breakup and. Uh, I would order from this one place, and I know, again, that uh, at its essence it wasn't good, but I would order two cheesesteaks, mm-hmm. extra cheese, extra onions, ketchup, mm-hmm. and two very fine apple juice. Mm-hmm. And, like, I probably haven't had a cheesesteak in 25 years, but I know that if I were up there and I even just smelled one of them, it would bring me immediately back. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's I would just, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So some there are things that, like, um, they just somehow, the way they feel and smell... It transports Manhattan yeah. Beach Mexican food, so, and those yeah. restaurants are still there. The ones that I ate at as a kid. Yeah, but you don't. Wanna, it'll probably. Make, I mean, there's a there's a there's got to be like some chance you could cry. <laughs> you went right now in this interview. No, that, I'm not trying to Firestone yet. No, no, I'm not trying to Roy Firestone yet. <laughs> okay, I'm saying but if you went. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, if you went. So uh, you're home watching that stuff, and you get this idea: Hey, I could be an I could be an actor. Yeah, yeah. And also, um, you know, my mom really. Uh, pushed uh, she just saw that i had a, a lot of interest in movies and 
So she would actually take me to rated R movies when I was nine, ten years old. And I had very unusual tastes in movies at that age. I wasn't into kid movies. I was into more adult movies. Like what? Well, um, I remember seeing Chinatown. No way. You know, and all that jazz. Movies that actually still are some of my favorite movies. Well, those two movies in particular. And so now we're sort of getting anecdotal here, which I've talked about before. But it's certainly interesting for people who uh, don't have never read this, which is as if they've read a ton about me, um, is that I, uh, my video store clerk when I was a kid was Quentin Tarantino. Yes. That that was, there was this avant-garde video store uh, in Manhattan Beach where I grew up, and Quentin Tarantino famously was the video store clerk there. And I would go in there, and I would spend a tremendous amount of time with him. I mean, I would spend an hour at a time talking movies with him, so much so that they called me Little Quentin. And that was my nickname, was Little Quentin. No, I know that. And when you would, uh, when when it all started happening for him, how did you, con- did you connect it? In, in, when did you connect it? Oh, and what did it do for you watching that happen? It was crazy watching it happen. I think I was 18. Um, so you'd started acting then or no? Yeah, I mean, no, not professionally. I was just doing high school theater. And I was a theater major at USC at that time as an actor. And that's when Reservoir Dogs came out. And it was famous in Manhattan Beach. I mean, it was just explosive that Quentin... And Quentin was... Uh, I don't know if you would describe him as a minor celebrity, but... Anyone that would rent videos at this video store, which was called Video Archives, yeah. which was the avant-garde video store in Manhattan Beach, certainly knew Quentin because he was... Did Roger Avery work there, too? Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, they That's worked there thought. together. Yeah. Um, and Avery, I didn't really know. I just spent so much time with Quentin. Um, and uh, and so, wait, so you noticed when he got successful? Yes. And it was like, did it empower... Did it give you a sense that it was possible? Or did you always know, like, oh, that guy's different in some way? No, I didn't... I, it was unbelievably exciting. To just see that this film buff who was very energetic and eccentric making this movie. And I think what was even more exciting to me was how much I loved the movie. How much I thought Reservoir Dogs was as as exciting, as riveting a film as I'd seen at that time. When did it connect back with where he noticed you? It was about – well, I went to a signing that he did – where um, where he was signing posters, and he remembered me, and he was very sweet, but it was about 11 years later, or maybe even longer, 12 years later, a friend of mine, um, and at this point, Quentin had become this yeah, international he was, he was Quentin, auteur. Quentin yeah. Tarantino, you know, and you, were, you at this point, we'll get to it, how it happened, but you at this point were a real working actor. You'd been on yes. television a lot, yeah. and had regular roles, and were yeah. like a real figure. Uh, yeah, I figure-ish. And uh, I don't know if um, I don't know if I'd started writing. I think I had started writing by the time I reconnected with him. Yes, I definitely had. I don't know if I had sold Recount yet, but he was a you know we had a mutual friend, and I hadn't seen him like I said. It was eleven, twelve years, and I told the friend the story about how I used to go to the video store, and he went to Quentin one day, and he said, "Hey, have you ever heard of a guy named Danny Strong?" And then Quentin said, "Oh yeah," and he told him back the story verbatim that I had told him, except I had forgotten that my nickname was Little Quentin, and he told him. He said we all called him Little Quentin because oh, he spent great. so much time. In That's the video fantastic. Store. And yeah. have you seen him? Yeah. Oh yeah, I've seen him many times. It was at the at the Golden Globes, uh, the year Django won was the year Game Change won, and so we were both at a party afterwards holding our Golden Globes. Do you have the picture? Did you uh, take a picture? No, we didn't take a picture. But he told the entire party the story. He's like, "You people don't get it, man. This is little Quentin, okay? This that's is little fantastic. Quentin." And then he told everyone the story. It was it was really fun. Oh, that's great. What a yeah. You see, that's a 
I, I just have to think that, that watching his success would have been awesome and loving the movie would have been awesome. And then it would have also, I know I can point to the people who wrote screenplays that who I knew when I was like, I, wow, that's it's possible because it seems yeah. so impossible to me. Well, it, you know, a, an acting career, there is an impossibility to it. You could be the greatest actor of all time all of this and stuff. it could never... It can never happen. You can never even book one single well, job. Well, you were also unconventional because, and I, I, I want to ask about this because you know you're not very tall. Sure, and but I, oddly attractive. Yes, well, no, yeah, no, yeah, winning, no, no, winning, no, totally winning, winning, <laughs> winning in every sure. way. But no, no, no. I do think that it's, uh, you know, because people always will look at their sometimes notice their own um, deficits in a way uh-huh. and think that those things count them out. Mm-hmm. But you never did, right? Or did you? Like, how did no, it? Were you, sort of, did people tease you about it when you were young? Or oddly, not? not not very much. I think when I was very, I think at a very young age, I exuded a lot of confidence, and I was quite cocky, and I think that um, I just always had sort of a natural confidence and cockiness that deflected, that deflected teasing, and it would be, you know, there were, I was never really an outsider. Right. It was more. Also, it was very athletic, which I think is where I got a lot of my yeah, confidence that's, uh, from. Really important when you're a sure. kid and you're very athletic. And um, so I don't. I don't have this childhood riddled with memories. What of being was your teased. favorite sport? Uh, volleyball. I was a volleyball player. That's Manhattan Beach, right? And I was, you know, Manhattan Maricosta High School. We are. We were, and I don't know if we still are, but we were national champions year in, year out. And you played on that team? I played on the team, and I made varsity when I was a junior. Awesome. And, right. you know, I was just part of that kind of volleyball culture. Right, so you knew that you could do a hard thing and do it well, and that you're like sort of, it didn't matter. You weren't going to be defined by it. Yeah, well, look, I was four foot four my freshman year of high school, and I made the Maricosta volleyball team. I mean, and that's a tall person's sport. I was going to say, so, I mean, yeah, you can't yeah. just stand in the back and set. You have to go to the front at well, some point. Well, no, no, no. They rotate you I'm out in the you front when you're four. So how yeah, do they rotate yeah. you out? So, I mean, when you rotate, when you up, get to the front, they put in a tall guy who can't do the skills that that I can do in the oh, back really? row. Yeah, great. They call my uh, my. Sorry, t- that was, was my a, lack of volleyball. I was a knowledge. defensive specialist. Great. Yeah, yeah. So. Right, but you were in there, and you were like, without a doubt, without a, right. But you know, I, I think on the acting side too, that there's certainly a, a long history of very famous people that are short. Yeah, so, but like you didn't James play Cagney those. But and yes, Michael J. Fox. But and, sure, and on, like on Mad Men at first, obviously, in a way, it helped you to be the, the character that they wanted you to be. But you got a lot of roles that were not at all defined by... Yeah, absolutely. I'm saying, you know what I mean, where you were confident and a winning person. Sure. And it wasn't, you, you know... It goes back and forth. What, what, I mean, I was... Cagney was too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it just depended, you know. I mean, Michael J. Fox was such a hero of mine when I was 10 years oh, old great. and 11 years old because he was five foot three, And uh, I remember I got, to, I got to meet him a few years ago. And I said, uh, I said, when I was a kid, I wanted to be you. Oh, that's great. Yeah, which is neat. And did he like it? Yeah, he said, uh, I think you're doing just fine as you. Oh, that's so nice, yeah, man. That's a cool thing to say. So you're, you, you set off on this path that you're going to be an actor. And uh, talk about how that happened for you. Your college... How, how, well, how did it begin? Because this was from a very young age, and, and be- because of this transition that happened, from a very young age, you were like, this is what I'm going to be. Yes, yes. And I was so focused on it. And did you love doing it when you would do it, like in the theater? Yeah, and- loved it. Loved it. And once again, it was one of those things that gave me tons of confidence. 
um, and in which, you know, I'm in, I'm in high school, and I'm essentially the shortest kid in my high school, and yet, you know, I'm a freshman starring in the plays. And it just, it's another, it's sort of like what sports was when I was 10, 11, 12. This is giving me a, a and, lot. And you got and great feedback right away. Great feedback right away, and, and uh, I loved doing it. It was very exhilarating for me. It sort of was all the above, you know? Um, where, where do you think the confidence came from? Like, did your mother... Help you feel that way about yourself? Did your I don't mm, like? Where do you think? I have well, no idea. People, it's a very um, elusive commodity. Yeah, you know what I mean? yeah. There's no, uh, there's no way. I don't, maybe perhaps it was a self defense mechanism of how you deal with the fact when you're a foot shorter than everybody else. <laughs> Is, sure. is either is you just... shy away in the corner or you puff up your chest and just jump into the crowd. You know, often I'll read. Um, I'll read. Right, decide to take over all of Europe. Yeah, you know, <laughs> no, 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 there you yeah, go. Yeah. But you know, I'll read articles about how uh, men that are shorter get paid less, or it's harder for society. And I'll read that, and I'll be like, "Haha, not for me, pals." Right. You know, immediately, like, yeah, yeah, immediately is like, "I'm not going to, I'm not going to fall into that." So um, I think that right. definitely was. So you had this, you you sort of like just decided, yes. which I love that sort of uh, will to power in a way, or will to succeed. And then you loved. It turned out you loved doing it, and you were good at it. I loved doing it. I was good at it. I got a lot of attention. For for it. I think it suited my personality. Sure. Would uh, you think about it a lot? All the time. Right. Just you, obsessive. Obsessed with acting. Obsessed with acting all through high school. Then I was a theater major at USC. Obsessed with acting all through college. Basically from the age of 14 to 23, there was probably never a moment where I wasn't either in a play, auditioning for a play, or rehearsing a play. Just... I probably did 40 plays during that time period. Incredible. You just got so many reps. And this is just... You're like, you were like... um uh, this is the thing that makes me happy. This yeah. is what I want to do is who I am. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you're winning at it. And yeah. how'd you get an agent? So it was, I randomly was able to get an agent when I was 13, but they didn't send me out. And then I was able to get another agent when I was, I think, 15 or 16. And it never went anywhere. Did you start typing the letters eventually? Yeah, well, I knew people. Like, I knew, say, someone in my junior high had uh -huh. an agent, so I asked them to give them my pictures. And they would always want to meet with me because I looked so much younger. Right. So then I oh, was that was able, an advantage in a way. A huge advantage. And I was able to get an agent, but I wasn't able to parlay it ever into a job. And I think part of it was because I was so immersed in high school theater that I didn't like leaving it to go audition for commercials. Um, right. and, Your and ambition was to do the thing, actually. Yeah. You wanted to like be acting. But I wanted to be on TV shows, but I could never get them. And then I think after a few auditions, the agents would give up on me. Right. Um, and then when I was 18, I did – I got cast in my first professional production, which was – I did Oliver at the Civic Light Opera of South Bay Cities. And I was the Artful Dodger. Wow. And an agent saw me there. And I got signed from an agent from that production. And then I started auditioning more seriously all through college. How would you prepare for auditions back then? Um, that's a great question, which will lead to a significant turning point, which Good. I just said in quotes. Um, I would look at the material, and I would ask myself, what are they looking for? And I would try and give it to them. What do I think they want? You'd read like the whole script or just the sides? Usually just the sides because that's all they'd send me. And I would just, I would just be like, well, what do I think they want? And that's how I would approach it. And after four years of auditions, and the auditions weren't a lot, but they weren't inconsistent either. In those four years, I booked two jobs. 
Um, this is like what, 18, 19? 18 through 22. Okay. So all through college, I'm doing college theater. And that's going well. Those jobs that's, are getting your nails. That's going terrific. I'm like very early on at USC, I'm getting cast in shows. By my sophomore year, I'm, I'm you know, one of the guys that's always getting cast sure. in plays. And, um, I, but auditioning wise, nothing. Year after year after year. And then when I graduated, I had an internship at Davis Entertainment for a, these two young producers. And very quickly, I had a, a pretty good knack for reading scripts and telling them what was wrong with the scripts. And they they uh, wanted to hire me to be their assistant. And, and, you know, with this telling me that I would be a director of development in two years. Right. And I was going to do it. I thought, I've been auditioning for four years. Um, and, and by the same method of thinking, what would they want... No. I'm saying by auditioning, by doing this whole sort of like approach. It was taking. more of just the auditioning approach had failed me for That's four years. Yes. And um, and I was very discouraged about acting. And I thought, well, I've given it four years. Right. And I've literally gotten basically nothing. One line in a movie, and it was cut. And then a small part on Say by the Bell, the new class, right? So um, so I told myself, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm, I'm going to quit, and I'm going to take this assistant job. And uh, I re- had an audition, and I, re- I mean, I remember this very specifically. I went to the audition, and I got the sides, and I thought, well, what are they looking for? Because that's all I've been thinking for the last four years. What are they looking for? And then I thought to myself, you know what? This is my last audition. And I even told people in the room, this is my last audition. I'm quitting. And it's so funny because the response was, congratulations. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. good for you, that's man. Great. Good Not for you. Not keep No, no, no. Oh, sure, one less they have to worry one about. One less. And also, like, they wish they could do it too, right? Right. And yeah. so, um, and I read the material and I thought, so what are they looking at? And I thought, you know what? This is my last audition. Why don't I just do what I want? Um, I'm just going to do whatever I want. And I thought... Well, it's kind of dumb, the sides. It was the sitcom that I'm not going to name, but it was only on for 13 episodes. And, um, and I thought, what could make this funny? It was just a complete mindset shift. What could make this funny? And I thought, you know what? What if I played this guy like I'm Kramer from Seinfeld? If I make him really weird and I'm just going to walk into the room in character, I'm just going to walk in weird and I'm going to do it. So I walk in weird. They start laughing the second I walk in the door. I do the sides. They're in hysterics. I leave. Uh, an hour later, I get a call. You got the part. Wow. So then the next day, I have another audition. And you decide, might as well go. For Boy Meets World. Right. Yeah, I'm like, I just booked a part. And Boy Meets World was a big show. That's still very beloved to a certain age range. And, uh, and then I got the sides, and I thought, uh, so what are they looking for? And I thought, wait, <laughs> yesterday, <laughs> I ignored that. And I decided to do what I wanted. So you know what? I'm going to just, what would make this funny to me? And I thought, I'm going to make this guy really arrogant. If just just like, oh, just so arrogant. And I go in. I walk in the room. I do. They're on hysterics. I get a call. I got that part. Two days later, same thing happens. I booked three jobs in one week after four years of essentially nothing. That's incredible. That is some incredible, like, uh, you know, time in your life. Yes. And right some, when I an amazing to quit. distinction that you were able to make. Well, sure, you were cashing it in. Yeah, but I had to get to that point in order to creatively cross the line to tell myself, oh, wait, my mindset, which has been trying to figure out what they want, 
has been dead wrong for all these years, and I need to do what I do and what I what want they to want my own creativity. What they want, and it's the case all the time, is they want you to be great. Yes. What they want is to be inspired and to be shaken up and not to feel like they're being, uh, somehow you're courting them when you're auditioning. They want you to come in and own the thing. Yeah, that's exactly uh, right. Well, now that I'm on the other side of, yeah. of the, the camera, and people are auditioning for me quite frequently. You know, uh, I, it's 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 exactly right. I I mean, I kind of know what I want, but at the same time, someone could come in and just be unique and original and do something original with the material, and they'll get the part. Oh well, yeah, you want them to understand it and be. Uh, but the the problem is, what you were doing was some variant on what everybody was doing. All the good actors, even yeah, were coming in and basically. You know, you, I'm, I'm auditioning people right now, and they walk in the room, and I just see the same thing, the same moves, and then somebody comes in who it's clear has somehow um, has really internalized it, and then the words come out, and you believe that they're really saying them. It's a giant difference, yeah. man, right? Yeah. I mean, for, for you actors out there uh, listening, I think the, the what really is the most effective thing in an audition is who can just make the scene work the best. I just find that when I get lost and I'm not even thinking about the actor, I'm just lost in the scene because they're literally playing the scene for real, then I'm not even thinking about them. And the second they're done, the first thought that floods into my mind was, wow, that was great. Right. Well, it's also, it's a very common thing. And I think it's not just for actors. It's people always ask about pitching an idea. But beyond that, any sort of creative meeting, and I think it's across any any business almost, which is if you're in the capacity, if you're in the position of the meeting where you're um, selling yourself, your idea, your thing, really what the people on the other side want to know is that you got this, mm-hmm. that you have ownership over it, that you know, have the answers and that you can solve their problem, right? Because that's what the casting thing is. Yeah. There's a problem that needs to be solved. Yeah. This part has nobody to play it. Yeah. Come in and solve the problem for me. That's perfectly said. And that I find when people get all nervous about pitching and all the rest of it, it's like, no, no, no. If you're walking in that room, just don't walk in until you know you can solve their problem. Yeah. Uh, that's what makes it, for me, very, very easy. And it's all across sort of like anything that you do. But so you start booking these jobs. Yes. Right? And you, when you start doing it and you have more and more to do, are you digging it at the beginning? Oh, yeah. I mean, a year and a half later from that moment, I'm, I'm supporting myself full time as an actor. Which is kind of the dream, right? I mean, you go to theater school, you want to be an actor, and then I'm now, you know, 23, were you 24. A, you were recurring on Buffy or a regular? A recurring. Last, so you were, but, but they booked you for a lot of the episodes uh, yeah, but at a yeah, certain point, I mean, right? most of my career as an actor has been a recurring character on TV shows. And I think I've been a recurring character on eight or nine different TV shows. And um, you just, you never know when they're going to hire you again. And it's actually pretty stressful. Sure. Because every time you do an episode, you have no job security. So you just, you want to nail it and you want to be so good. And those things, wanting to nail it and wanting to be good is not conducive to good acting. Sure. It gets in the way of it. And um, So no one ever gave you that feeling of comfort? You know, yes and no. I mean, you get the, you, you under, you get the sense that they like you. Um, when I was on Gilmore Girls, they definitely made me feel really well-liked. Um, and I would do three or four a year, um, which, which you know, was fantastic, and I loved doing that show. But it was always – you're just always wondering when you're going to get the next one. I remember one time, one season of Gilmore Girls, they booked me – or they put me on hold, quote-unquote, for three episodes. And then those three episodes turned into one. 
that they just cut me out of two other episodes. And financially, it was devastating. Sure. I was just, because in that, my mind, I had rent money for, for six months. And then you suddenly didn't. And now I had it for two months. Um, and so it's, it's a grind. It's definitely a grind. Did you like the doing? Loved it. I love the doing. Although I will say that there was something about, you know, different shows I loved doing more. I loved Gilmore Girls in particular because I loved the way they wrote the character. They always gave me meaty scenes. I always had a ton of dialogue, a lot to do. And they would always try and shoot it all in one day or two days. So I'd show up and for two days I had all these great scenes. And it was it was a lot of fun to do. Um, the Here's an element that when you come from theater and you do a lot of theater, theater is very exciting. It's very exciting sure. to yeah. do a play. The audience is right there. They're responding immediately. Yeah. Right. For two hours, your adrenaline is sky high. Uh, and when you do a TV show, you're shooting 8, 10, 12, 14 hours no yeah. audience. And at the end of the day, there's something slightly dissatisfying about it because you're in your car. A, a lot and of yeah, times, it takes a long time. I mean, the satisfaction is quite Well, no one says anything delayed, to you right? and you're leaving and you're thinking to yourself, did I do good today? I don't know. I guess I, right. I thought it was okay. And it's, it's very when you, when you come from theater and you get that rush, there is a certain a little bit of a letdown acting what, on film. What was the life like that you were living at that time? Oh, what do you mean? I mean, you're living by yourself. Yeah. Did you have a group of people who you were hanging around with, other actors? Were you hanging around with filmmakers? Could, were you auditioning every day? Like, what was auditioning the... Auditioning all the time. So one of my... You're in your mid-20s now? Mid-20s. One yeah. of my best friends was Michael Bacall, who has gone on to become a huge screenwriter. He wrote 21 Jump Street, 22 Jump Street, uh, Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. And he was an actor. And we were auditioning against each other, and we were also best friends, and we were like brothers. We literally would have lunch every day together, unless one of us was working. We would be insanely jealous of each other if one had an audition that the other one hadn't, if the other one booked something the other one didn't. And at the same time, we were completely on each other's side. So it was this really cool, competitive relationship. That's great. And uh, basically, quite often, it would come down between me and him, because we were sort of the same quote-unquote type. Um... And he was a dear friend of mine all throughout my 20s. And then I had other friends, uh, actors. Um, a friend of mine named Henry Capano was an agent who now runs Go Go Lucky Productions, which is a reality. So you would show fill company. your day. You were able to fill your days even when you were waiting. Yes, to but, work. Uh, but what there, were you doing? I was discontent. Yeah, that's what I want to know. Yes, I was very, especially one once it was once I was 25 ish where I had now been working for a few years and that will I ever, quote unquote, you know, get a job. Now I'm getting jobs. But I, what was like the most you could make in a year back then? Um, I would say, you, you know, I was making between 70 to $120,000. Right. So you had six figure years in your sort of mid 20s. Yes. Yeah. As an actor, you which I like, thought, who knows if I'd ever work? Well, that's, one, that's the top 1% yeah. of actors. That, yeah. that is, you're in the top 1% of SAG for sure. But I never knew if it was going to happen year in, year right, out. Right, you couldn't live that way. No, because yeah, that's exactly right, because you never knew when your next job was coming, and that's kind of the scary part of it all. And, and then your days, you'd, you'd feel discontinued. Did you feel like you weren't using all the best parts of yourself Not even close to it. I was, I, right. When I look back upon the, those years, I look, I look back upon someone who was mostly unhappy that I was kind of miserable because my entire life was spent waiting for the phone to ring. Yeah. And here's, here's, here was the phone calls I was waiting for. Um, you have the audition. 
you have the callback or you have the job? And pretty much the answer is no all year long to all three questions. And it's demoralizing. Even when it's not, it is. It sort of just chips away at you. It's even harder for women, too, because they tie in their ability to get hired with their oh, physical yeah. attractiveness. Ellen Barkin was on here, and she told she told me the story of yeah. you know, people saying you're too ugly, flat out, too ugly for the part. Yeah, yeah, and it chips away at you. And, it's, uh, and I remember being so um, just kind of miserable. I was sort of like just, just unhappy. And then when I would book jobs, though, I didn't get joy from that. The The thought was, oh, well, of course. Of course I booked a job. I should be booking jobs all the time. As opposed to... You were not living in gratitude. Or celebration. Right. More, more significantly. Right, yeah. And, and I remember reading the book Moneyball. And um, reading the book Moneyball, and with Billy Bean, he talked about how, as a professional baseball player, he would be miserable when he wasn't succeeding. And then when he was doing well... It would not bring him joy. He just felt that's what he's supposed to be doing. And I remember reading that thinking, that's exactly how I feel. And it was the first time that it was just defined in such, sure. such you know, Brutal. literal that's, terms. Like, that's, that's exactly how I that's feel. That's the compulsive gambler. You know, the, uh-huh. the difference. Regular people get joy out of winning. The compulsive gambler only feels alive when he's losing. Mm-hmm. And it's that's why they can never be happy. Yeah, and I was a heavy gambler during that time period, so maybe there's a tie-in to that. Were you playing a lot of poker at Hollywood playing Park? Playing a lot of poker, Hollywood Park, Commerce Casino, Bicycle Club, um, before it was a thing. And it was very, I called it the United Nations of Degeneracy. Like what year Because was it was degenerate. I always every, wonder if you and I were playing country. poker together without knowing it. Um, when was that? In my mid-20s? So 14 years ago? 15 years ago? Uh, yeah. I can't do the math. Poker but had started to become Yeah, thing, late 90s. Yeah. Uh, what well, was really what two thousand and two, two thousand three? Well, with, uh, it, it, well, Moneymaker one and the World yeah, Poker that's Tour it, and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So anyway, well, it, there was a little movie that happened a couple years before oh, wait, wait, they started it, was, it. Rounders. I think there was a little Ring movie that started Brian a couple Popovid. years before, but that doesn't listen. There let's we not, go. I apologize. Let's not really I tease that, that out. Right, right let's away. not tease <laughs> out when the poker boom actually started, though. The documentary All In, uh, which is on Showtime now, uh-huh. has an interesting take on when it really started. When when was they would say Rounders come out? Ninety eight. And, but but it probably was Rounders that that got me really going to those good clubs, recovery. So. Yeah, that's a good recovery. I think it was Rounders. That's a great Rounders recovery. changed my heart and my soul. Thank you. Um, no, that well, Rounders gave people the the vernacular of the game, and then um, the whole card cam like showed people with MoneyMaker how to really play, and then mm-hmm. the internet gave people access. And so MoneyMaker was the thing that MoneyMaker saw Rounders. That's why I started playing. I remember. And then that. when MoneyMaker won that thing. He was a regular guy who won, and by then everyone was ready, and then the explosion really happened. Yeah, a regular guy who won whose name was Moneymaker. It was the greatest thing. I mean, that's, it's, I mean, that's crazy. It was an incredible story. But, so there you are, yeah. gambling a lot, mid-20s. Do you move to New York at that time? No, no, no. I didn't move to New York till my writing career took off. I had always dreamed of living in New York since I was basically 15, but I, I couldn't sing. But let's. So I couldn't make money right, here. You couldn't be on the, the stage here. Singing. I just couldn't make money here. Because a lot here. of people come here and they can't sing. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people are in New York who can't sing. I just didn't think they're that. They're not on the stage. Yeah, or nor, or nor they're actors. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I just didn't, uh, I didn't see a viable. And I had an agent and I was doing TV shows and there was very little TV production at the time. Here's but, what's great your level of self knowledge is so great because, like, almost nobody will say they can't sing. Oh, all you have to do is hear me, and you're very aware yeah, that most I can't people, do it. Most people think they can sing. I would have to be delusional, which some people I've worked with are delusional. It's always fascinating. Yeah, they like, believe wow, it. Wow, yeah. But so, uh, you know, um, the premise of the show is that people accomplish remarkable things, process these big moments differently than the rest of us do. And I, I just want to, how did you come to this awareness that 
this discontent was something you couldn't handle anymore and that you had to you had to find a way to kick something else into gear. Was it conscious? Was it not conscious? I was so conscious. It was. It came from a few. There was a few moments that yeah, all happened, happened around the same time. <clears throat> First off, I knew I was miserable, and I was surprised by that because I thought uh-huh. I've been wanting this since I was eight years old. I had been writing letters to William Morris since I was eight years old, and now I'm 25, 26. I'm making you know uh, low six figures. This is the dream, right? And I'm, why am I so unhappy? Simultaneously, my buddy Michael Bacall writes a screenplay and he sells it for a quarter of a million dollars. Uh, and I'm brimming with jealousy. Rage. Just, I'm, and, and he's Did taking, he take you to dinner? Yes. He took me to dinner and it became a tradition that anytime he would sell a script, which he would sell many over the next several years, he would... Buy me a steak dinner. And were you like, I'm smarter than that guy? I was like, I'm so much smarter. No, I just was, I was so jealous. And he was now taking meetings with studio executives and producers. And presidents of companies were calling him. And I'm still auditioning for my Toasty Nut Crunch commercial. And you didn't tell yourself, hey, he got these breaks that I couldn't get or he knew people. What did you tell yourself about what he did? I just, how did he do that? So it was a question. It was just, it was how was he able to do that? And I read the script that he sold, and it was terrific. And I had been a script reader. In, for the in, Davises. For, yeah. And I had parlayed that into being a script reader for Trimark. So that 18 months before I was a full-time actor, I was mostly writing coverage. Right. So I knew scripts. And in his and he was clearly the script was really good. Now, when he was writing, did you know he was writing, or did yeah, you? Yeah, he told secret? me he was writing, and I think I was even jealous then that he was actually sitting, right, down, actually and sitting down and it. doing it. Yeah, yeah, you're sitting down and doing it, and then he wanted me to read the script for. I was one of the first people to read it because he knew I had written coverage for so long, and I remember I just was like, "This is terrific! Congratulations!" And then he sells it, and then simultaneously, um, there's a few movies come out: uh, Swingers and Election. And Swingers is guys, actors, uh, you know, an actor writes a movie about his life as an actor, and he goes to Vegas. All these things I recognized in my own life. Did you know John and Vince from being around L.A.? No, no. Okay. I didn't know those guys at all. And um, and I just thought, wow, he just took an existence, one that is not dissimilar from the one that I am living, except I had no Vince Vaughn-type friend, but I was not dissimilar from Favreau's character in that movie. And, um, and he... And he wrote a movie about it, and the movie was so good. And then I remember seeing Election and thinking it was so wicked and so cool. And I just thinking, I think I want to do something like that, which ironically I would end up writing movies about elections. But I just I just thought that the tone, there was something about the tone of that movie. Which you recognize as a writing thing, not as Alexander Payne, the director. You recognized it first as a writing thing. I believe so. Yeah, right. I believe it was the the, the... the thought of, wow, this guy wrote a thing and connected this character. Yeah, and connected the character. And it was also moving, and there was something kind of exciting about it. It did so many things at once that really drew me. And I remember telling Michael that um, I, th- I think I want to write something for me to star in. And sort of the same way John Favreau did. I was just totally inspired by John Favreau as far as that goes. And he kept pushing me. He was really encouraging. And he just said, you've got to write. You've got to write. I came up with an idea. I pitched it to him. Uh, he took me to lunch, and he helped me kind of work out the story. I, I specifically remember that lunch we had. And we kind of worked the story a little bit. And then I went, and I wrote it. And how did you create the discipline for yourself? That Do you remember what you did to write the first I, script? I don't. I remember that it was in between auditions. And, and auditions were quite time-consuming because I would go on many 
When you say in between, though, you would go to coffee shops? I know you say you don't remember, but I know you do. Yes. You have to oh, kind oh, of remember. Oh, I did go to coffee shops even then, and I knew exactly where I went. It was called Insomnia Cafe. Sure. So you would you would go between auditions or at night, and you yes. would just try to get a couple pages done? Yeah. I don't remember how much I actually got done writing-wise. I mean, I can tell you now, but back then, I don't remember what the output was. I remember it took a while. It took about five or six months, I think, to yeah. finish that But you did. Script. You got You finished it. I finished it, and I gave it to Michael... And I did you give him like a first draft or did you like rewrite it? You think I don't remember. Like yeah. I specifically don't remember. I remember I had one friend named Herb Ratner, who's still a good friend of mine, who had sold the script when he was 25 and the script was genius. And I remember I was scared to give it to him because he was, quote unquote, my smartest friend. Right. And still is one of my smartest friends. And I remember being scared to give it to Herb. So I didn't give him my first draft. I think I gave Michael my first draft. Maybe someone else. I remember people were a little hard on it. Yeah. And then I did a rewrite. And I remember when I did the rewrite, I remember it feeling like it was clicking into place. Like, this is getting better. And I remember feeling comfortable enough to give it to Herb. I thought, I'm going to give the script to Herb now. And and I went away to Tahoe for New Year's Eve because a friend of mine had this big house in Tahoe and a whole group of us would go. And I remember checking my messages when we used to have home answering machines. And there was a message from Herb and him telling me, I read your script and it's really funny and it's really good. And congratulations. I'm really impressed. Oh, that's great. And I remember that being a very huge life moment for me because I remember thinking, oh, maybe I can do this for a living. And that's awesome. Did you and, and by that point when you were writing, did it and clicking into place in this rear? Because I've heard you talk now even to me about how much you like rewriting. Yeah, you, know, you like to get to the end of your first draft and then you love to rewrite. Yeah. Did you think, oh, I want to do this? This is where I'm going to live more than the acting thing? I thought I, I thought it could happen. And I was sort of hopeful that it could, that I could eventually transition into this. And I remember it wasn't immediately, but about over the next year, I started right. Well, well, I mean, I guess it takes a little longer I mean, to yeah, answer what that. Happened? But, but basically, I, I think I did a pass or two more, and I gave the script to a few producers that I knew. And they all said the same thing, which is, this is really terrific and really funny. Can we run with this without you attached to star in it? Yeah. And I told them all no, because it was a small little indie. And I remember the anecdote of Sylvester Stallone, sure. Rocky, and wouldn't and give Favreau, it up. And Favreau, and there's, Fa yeah, yeah, sure. So I said, no, I'm sticking to my guns. By the way, Matt and Ben. Yes. Uh, by the way, that film has never been made, unlike Rocky and Goodwill Hunting. However, I enjoyed the writing process. What was it called? It was called Die, Harry, Die. And it was about two mid-20s guys that were kind of singer-esque who tried to kill an old man for his rent-controlled apartment. And then there was a movie called The Duplex that came out that basically yeah. killed that movie. So, um, But I, rem I was so encouraged by the response, and the process of writing it had been so healthy for my life because it got my mind off all those things that were making me yeah. miserable that I decided I was going to pursue a writing career, and I wasn't going to attach myself to any more scripts. And that what I, a mature, amazing decision. Yeah, to I was make. like 26, 27, and I thought, I'm going to do this separately, and I'll still have Die, Harry, Die, and if I can get that made, that'll be my swing. And I'll still act and go on auditions. I'll still go on auditions. I'll still act. I'll try and get Die, Harry, Die made, and I'm going to write other scripts and try and become a professional Did writer. you try to get an, an agent at that point to help you on, on, on movies or not yet? Yes, and I got passed on by... 10 agents and 10 managers. Oh, it's so satisfying later. Gosh, yeah. happened to me too. It's oh, so it, I mean, the number of passes I've gotten as a writer and as an actor, it's endless. It's great. Yeah, it's- They know nothing. It's literally endless. They do know nothing. And there was an agent at Gersh 
who said, I really like the script. Send me the next one. And then I sent him the next one. And he passed on that. And he said, but I really like the writing. Send me the next one. And I sent him the next one. And he passed on that. No way. And I said, I'm not sending this guy any more scripts. I didn't even have an agent, but I was so mad. <laughs> and I was, um, so anyway. When so, we're done, you have to tell me who that was. Yeah. I, you know, I don't even remember his name. I just remember it was Gersh was the agency. But um, so that was, uh, yeah, so passed on endlessly. And I was writing. Did you think they were right or wrong? When they would pass on you, did it hit you? Because like, I'm, I'm interested in how you how you I, manage rejection. So there was an 18 month period where I went through a really bad period as an actor, kind of the worst 18 months I've ever had. I basically don't pursue acting anymore, and I work now more than I did in those 18 right. months as an actor. And um, and simultaneously, I was getting passed on by all these agents as a writer. So it was like a brutal year and a half I had that was everything I was trying to do professionally, creatively, which is so much of who your identity is, which is maybe not Especially a healthy thing. Especially out in L.A. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. Um, was just, it was going as bad as it could. And people, I remember my aunt asked me, she's like, how'd you deal with that? And I said, I was just really depressed. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's how you dealt with it. That's how I dealt but with it. But it didn't stop you from producing work. No, I kept going. That's a big, yeah. that's a sort of a big difference maker, dude. Right? I, th- I think that's what it ultimately is about. It's about how you deal deal with adversity as opposed to how you deal with success. How you deal with adversity, I think, is the way that defines a successful career. I have friends that are so talented, that are writers, and they take defeat as if it is, you know, the such an attack on who they are as a, and it cripples them and they are not successful. They have the talent to be successful, but it's because they can't deal with adversity. And you turn it into somehow, you turn it to fuel. Uh, yeah, not initially, uh, but but yes. I, you I, know, I remember someone told me an anecdote about Gary Ross, who I was one of his assistants on Pleasantville. And he had had this beautiful script he'd written, and Jim Carrey and Nicole Kidman were going to star on it when they were as huge as they could possibly be. And then, uh, and the film was about to go into production, and, and it was this literally this $80 million comedy drama. They don't even make those anymore. And then the studio pulled the plug on it, on the movie. And Gary was, you know, devastated. And the next day he showed up in the office and he said, okay, we're doing Seabiscuit instead. And he started writing Seabiscuit. And I remember that anecdote is that's what it takes to be successful in this business is you've got to be, okay, they've just, I've been hammered. I'm upset. I've gone to bed. I've woken up the next morning and now I'm figuring out what I'm doing. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I know that the, the show Dave and I are starting to shoot in, uh, in, you know, January for Showtime, absolutely, you know, which we wrote on spec, shows, absolutely came out of something else cratering and us coming in the next day and going, we're not doing that again. You know what we're going to do? We're going to control our fate by writing. The, and believe me, all I want to do is curl up in a corner yeah. and like go, oh, look, can we shut the office and not ever show up here again yeah. because we just did a big professional disappointment and in, instead I remember looking at, at, at Dave and going like um, and we our, our friend Andrew who we wrote this particular thing with and just saying like um, we're just going to write this and mm-hmm. we're going to control it and we're going to come here and Dave we're like that's exactly what we're doing you know yeah. there's power in that and showing up turning on the lights turning on the computer and just getting to work yeah tremendous uh, feeling of self-determination it's hard sometimes when professional disappointments hit you or life disappointments to sure. keep it going. But well, they you found keep going. in you to keep going. But they keep, I mean, those disappointments, they never stop. I mean, I still feel like every year I get hammered with something and that disappointment 
teaches me what I want out of my career, that it's this sort of endless artistic journey that I feel like never ends. I mean, I, for me, I feel as if I'm constantly, you know, growing. Well, because you constantly have to relearn that lesson about not serving them by the way. You constantly have to relearn the lesson of auditioning and not trying to figure out what they want, right? You have to constantly learn the lesson that you have to figure out what you, what you can only take the jobs where you can do the thing that you're fired up to contribute. Yeah. And the more you can do that, and by the way, I think that's across every, everything, you know, if you're going to do something that involves like passion and creativity, you have to be able to lock into that thing mm-hmm. to, to do it. Yeah. I find for me, I know it's whenever I've entered into the things and I didn't feel that way that I make myself vulnerable to getting kind of like crushed by other forces. Yeah. Um, so, but for, so you, uh, you write these things of these 18 rough months yes. and, and then you go see a play, right? No, no, no. So actually. tell me what happened. Well, so, so 18 month rumps, 18 rough months, but I keep writing and I'm writing high concept comedies. I'm basically trying to write Jim Carrey-esque comedies. Yeah. You know, high concept comedies, um, because those are what are big at the time. And I've wrote three or four of them and each script furthered my career. So I eventually got a manager, and then I wrote a script about – this is a, an ultimate example of a high-concept comedy. Uh, a senator cursed with instant karma. So everything he does, every corrupt act he That's does funny. happens back to him immediately. And that script blows up on the, the spec of the week when that used to happen. I don't know if it still does. and But it didn't sell. But it got me a ton of attention. It got me an agent. It got me a lot of meetings. It would have gotten on the blacklist and, now. Yeah, maybe. Happened, yeah. Right. And, and so now I'm on the board, right? Now I'm in the game. Then I, I write another script, which is, this is going to be my, I f- decide this is the ultimate concept. Freaky Friday, the school nerd and the school jock switch bodies. Bam, I'm going to get rich. Like, that's it. That's the one. I cracked it. I wrote it on spec. We took it out as a spec, and it tanked. It was not only did people not like the concept, they didn't like the writing. They hated everything. They hated everything. No one wanted to meet with me about it. It was as if I had taken a step backwards. And it was very devastating because now I've been writing scripts for about five years. And I just thought, what am I doing wrong? Five years you've been writing about. Yeah, yeah. And not sold a thing. And not sold a thing. And that's a long time to do something. Amazing to keep going. Yeah. And but, having... but it was so... Um, now, was... you didn't... By the way, you didn't stop acting. You didn't stop your no. life. You didn't stop trying to earn money. But you kept writing and uh, telling yourself, I'm just going to get better at this. Yes. That, that's exactly right. And I remember having a, a few moments of crisis during that time. You know, and one was... Um, I have to make this decision. You know, I may never make a dollar at this for the rest of my life because it's five years is a long time to do something and not not make a dollar at it when society tells you that you're not a professional writer unless you're getting paid for it. And I remember telling myself, so asking myself, so would you keep doing this knowing, would you do this for the rest of your life knowing you may never make a penny at it? Yes or no? And I answered yes immediately without even thinking about it. Yes, I would. How did you ask yourself that question? Like I, writing in a journal or just like walking around? I don't, maybe I'd read it somewhere. But it formed for you. Yeah, the question, question formed, formed for you. formed, you know, this question formed. Fantastic, yeah. And, um, and the answer was yes. And then I decided, okay, then my next question to myself was, what are you doing wrong? Because you got, you got to be doing something wrong, right? Well, measure, you know, my, yeah, my friend Tony Robbins always talks about that. Like uh-huh. uh, to keep working at something, but measure, measure what you're doing. Yeah, like, right. like let's take a look at this. 
And I realized I looked at all my shelves on the script, on my all my scripts on my shelf because I had them all on a shelf. And I thought, so what's wrong with these these scripts I've been writing for five years? And it hit me like a lightning bolt. You would never go see any one of these movies. You were writing movies you would never go see, and it was the exact same thing I did as an actor. What do they want? I just kept thinking I'm writing scripts that I think Hollywood wants to buy, not movies that excite me. And I told myself I will not see – I will not write another script until it's a movie I would actually go see. And then I didn't write a script for months. And I was on the show Gilmore Girls at the time, as I already discussed how satisfying that was. And I I even thought to myself, it's not – it's not as if I'm an assistant trying to write my way out of my assistant job. I have this really cool job that I get paid pretty well for that makes me unhappy at times, but actually doing it is satisfying. So why don't you just take a break and just wait until you figure out something that is, excites you? Uh, it's something you really want to do. Something, you, something I really want to do. So months went by, and uh, I didn't write anything. And then I went and saw the play Stuff Happens at the Mark Taper Forum, which was written by David Hare, and it was about the buildup to the Iraq War. And it was an inside account of how we got into the Iraq War. The characters were Powell, Cheney, Bush, Rumsfeld, Condi Rice. And it was riveting. And the audience was going crazy during this play. They were booing the actors. When they would say something they disagreed with, at times the audience was booing each other, where someone would say something that was sort of pro-Bush administration, and someone would go, boo, and then someone in the audience would go, boo to you. you know. And it was unbelievably exciting, and it was every reason why I went into the arts was to experience this. And I walked out of the theater, and I said, that's what I'm supposed to be writing. I'm supposed to be write something like Stuff Happens. And I was literally standing outside of the Mark Taper Forum. So I remember powerful. where I was standing. And within, I would say, 30 seconds, the idea of, well, what about the Florida recount? Maybe I could do Stuff Happens with the Florida recount. And what makes that crazy is that I didn't really follow the Florida recount as it happened. I was so pissed and angered and turned off that I wouldn't follow it. So now, all of a sudden, this idea about a movie about the Florida recount has popped into my head, and I got in my car, and I'm driving home, and I'm getting more excited. I'm like, wow, this recount. And then I thought to myself, no one would ever make this movie. And then my next thought was, well, that's, that hasn't gotten me very far in the last five years. And right, that thought doesn't that help thought you. That thought has not been helpful. So, And I instantly knew the only um, place that would buy that project is HBO because at the time the quote unquote adult drama was dead in Hollywood. You remember that for you know two and a half years because uh, Duplicity and one other movie that was really an adult genre movie failed. That all of a sudden now these movies are considered like the adult drama is dead. Um, what was the other one? Do you remember that? No, I, I don't ever. I mean, even less. I don't ever like. I don't ever buy into that stuff or yeah 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 but it, it, it was so crazy that yeah. there was these discussion of these two films that didn't succeed and they were because just... people have been saying the adult drama is dead the entire time i've been doing this really writing a lot of adult yeah, drama so yeah. i can't yeah so i but i remember being specifically angered by it because they were they were like adult genre movies and they were actually quite good they were really fun too so it was but anyways i'm driving home i um i get a book i start researching the florida recount and I'm riveted. And I thought to myself, I have found gold. This is dramatic gold. This is so good. And I called my manager and I said, um, I want to write a script about the Florida recount. And he says, the only company that would buy that is HBO and they would never buy it from you because they only buy from like very right. kind of track record of famous what writers. Yeah, I sure. never sold anything. And I said to him, I know. You're absolutely right, but it's so good. I don't even care. I'll write it on spec. I what, just don't what care. What year was this? 
This was two th- the end of 2005. Okay. So I created a pitch, and I basically created a pitch, which was what the movie ended up becoming, and I took it around to a few of the producers that had become fans of mine, and I got instant interest. So then my manager set some more meetings, um, and we I ended up taking you know seven or eight pitch meetings, and uh, I would say I think three or four of them actually wanted the pitch to take it out only to HBO. No one would take it anywhere else because the thought was only HBO would buy this. So we picked the producer, Paula Weinstein, who seemed perfect because she did political stuff. She was a big movie producer and she did HBO movies and had this deal with HBO. So the fact that her guy, Len Amato, wanted it and Paula wanted it seemed that's kind of a big coup for me and I didn't even know them at the time. So then we took the pitch to HBO and I remember I turned to Len Amato and I said, I can't believe I'm sitting here in the lobby of HBO about to pitch a project. This is so exciting. And he said, it's a better story if you sell it. Wow, awesome. <laughs> and he, and was he ended right. up becoming the head of HBO movies. Yes. But uh, you did sell it. And then I did sell it and that was the first thing I sold was Recount. And I sold it as a pitch. You sold it as a pitch, and then you went and wrote it. And, and how long from when you turned it into to it getting made, do you think? Um, it happened really fast. I sold it, I think, March, April. I wrote it. It took six months to write it. HBO didn't pressure me at all. By the way, one of the coolest first meetings I've ever had as a writer was with Jenny Sherwood, the VP of Films at HBO, after I had sold it. And she said, because I expected them having all these parameters for me. Yeah. And she said, we only have one thing we want from you which is we want you to write the best script you can. and How empowering. Yeah, it was. And I remember being unbelievably terrified because I knew this was an opportunity I've been working towards. I didn't even know if I could do it because I'd only been writing comedies. And I and they, they, she was talking in the room about a script, about a political subject that they were big fans of. And I said, well, can I read it? Because I thought this will help me know what they like. And I read the script, and I thought, "Was it Syria? Like, what was it, Syriana or something crazy?" No, I don't want to say thing? what it was because the writer will know that he wrote that. Um, but I read the script, and I remember thinking, "I can do way better than this." And I thought, "If they love this, I know I can do better than this. So I think I can do this." And um, and that was. Uh, and then so oh, so so then I wrote it, turned it in in December, at the right before Christmas in December two thousand six, and I remember turning it in thinking I may never get hired to write anything ever again, and I really hope this turns into something because this was wonderful, but I was preparing myself sure. for failure. Sure. And um, and then in that interim, Len Amato gets hired to be the VP of HBO Films, and he even called me, and he said, uh, he said I'm now the VP of HBO Films. He goes, I love the script, but I'd, like, I'm still waiting for the president, Colin Callender, to read it. Of course. And so until he reads it, kind of all bets are off, so just hang tight. And six weeks went by, and I didn't hear anything. And then I got a call from Paula Weinstein. Now, Paula hadn't called me. I hadn't spoken to Paula during the process. It was I was only working with Len. You know, Paula was the big fancy producer. Len was producer. giving you notes, going through it yeah. with you, all and that Paula stuff. Paula would stick her head in the room and say, I hear you're doing a great job. Keep up. You know, she was very sweet to me, but uh, she never had called me. Well, Paula was a huge movie producer. Huge. You have to say, Paula was a huge movie yeah. producer. She produced many, many incredible and so classy hit, and movies. dynamic yeah. woman. And, um, and so she calls me, and I think, oh, she's calling to fire me because I've never heard from her, and why would she be calling me? Yeah. And she called me, and she said, have you heard of Risa Gertner? And I said, no. And she started laughing. And she said she's the, like, the, one of the biggest agents at CAA. And she said, Risa read the script and loved it. 
and told everyone at the HBO staff or at the CA staff meeting that she just read the best script she'd read in a while and she'd never heard of the writer. And because of her saying that, the script has now been passed around all over CAA and Sam Mendes has read it and he thinks he may want to direct it and Spielberg's going to read it this weekend and Oliver Stone's going to read it and CAA wants to sign you and congratulations, Danny, you did it. Wow. And I was just man. like, yeah, just like, I just couldn't, I'll just never forget that phone call. I couldn't believe it. And then the next day, it became confirmed that Sam Mendes thinks he wants to do it. And so now all of a sudden, everyone in Hollywood was reading the script, knowing that Sam Mendes, you know, may want, and he ended up not doing it to do Revolutionary yeah, Road. Jay Roach did it. Because uh, Leonardo DiCaprio committed to Revolutionary Road out of the blue. And so he'd been wanting to make that for years. Um, but that was kind of the start of, of basically everything. Right. And, and as that happened, and you got to get make that movie, which you ended up winning the Emmy for. No, I was nominated. Right? Well, you're nominated but, for but the, the film Emmy. Won. The film won an Emmy. You were nominated for yeah. an Emmy. Um, was it kind of like everything you'd hoped? Did you realize, okay, this is what I'm supposed to be doing? It was when I wrote the script, it wrote more natural to me than any of the comedies I'd written. It felt way more way more wow this is way more my voice you didn't feel like you were faking the funk no I, it was the opposite it was and i was able to sort of add a satiric edge to it but it was a drama and i got to get out you know political issues that i had been angered about and wanted to discuss and um and so uh, i don't know i'm sorry i'm lost what was the question no i'm saying so did it did did sort of did this all happening for you confirm to you Hey, this I'm happier doing this thing. So much happier. And basically, the film goes into production, and and I'm not auditioning, and I'm on set, because Jay Roach wants me on set by his side. Yeah. So I'm in pre-production with Jay. I'm on production with Jay. By the way, Jay Roach, the greatest guy ever, right? Very few directors. They want yeah. the writer as far gone as he possible. He directed two of your movies. Yes. Then we ended up doing Game Change after. But um, I was not acting or auditioning for six months, and then... It was literally the happiest I'd been in probably 15 years. So knowing, so that's when I decided to A, move to New York, and B, to stop auditioning. And I moved to New York, and I stopped auditioning. And for the next two years, I didn't go on an audition. And it was literally the greatest two years of my life, living in New York for the first time and not auditioning. Right. And by the way, still writing movies and acting. Yeah. No, I wasn't acting. Did you not do any acting jobs? Almost, I think, zero. So you started getting those calls later. Calls later. And that's what sucked me back into acting. But I, well, well, there's nothing better than like some creator of a show calling and saying, hey, come do three episodes. It's, it's without awesome. Without you having to do any work yeah, for it yeah, yeah. ahead of time. Yeah. But then I did start auditioning a few years later again, too. So which I kind of don't do anymore unless it's something really great like my role on Billions that you're writing for me right now, right? Mm -hmm. So what, what? if people could see the look he's giving right now. This interview just it's devastating to a horrible. <laughs> so, um, but basically, yeah. So that's what, so I moved to New York and then I'm writing, but I'm also terrified because I've never written another drama. And I don't know. And, and you're getting I, offered dramas. I'm getting, getting offered, meetings for dramas. Well, I don't know. Was this a fluke that I pulled the script off? And I know that there's all these expectations. It's like now I've finally been invited to the club, but I feel like I need to deliver again or I'm going to get kicked out right and away. And what was the second one you wrote? The second one I wrote was a movie about Brown versus the School Board of Education. And it was it just it just was one of those things where I wrote it right during that time, you know, and Universal decided, quote unquote, we were not going to make adult dramas anymore. And the script went into turnaround before I ever turned it in. So now I'm in this weird position where I have a script in turnaround 
and I haven't finished it. Right. <laughs> I don't even know what I'm supposed to do with that. But you did finish it. I did finish it, and the studio didn't ever read it. We never even turned it into them. Uh, and But did you decide, okay, I'm doing this, I'm doing these dramas, I'm going to find a way to make the next thing? Well, yeah, things were still, I, I was still getting a lot of really neat offers. And I had to be really methodical about what I was going to do next because I felt that I had to deliver on my next script. Or I was going to, because now it had been 18 months since the script recount had popped yeah. around town. And so I just was really methodical. And then the next project I took was the butler. Right. And so this article about a White House butler comes my way. Which I know you completely read. So then, I, because we can we can leap ahead here. So you do yeah. the butler and you crush it. And yeah. it obviously becomes this movie yeah. um, that was uh, a big hit, an enormous success, sure. both critically and commercially. You did Game Change with the same people you did the other movie. and All kind of, they were around the same time. And you have become, I mean, you have become one of the, the and now it's not just hottest because that sounds... Um, like it could go away, but you've become really um, entrenched in the the way people make movies now. You're really a part of it. You're really a very in demand screenwriter. I, I yeah, you, you I know, hope wrote so. the Hunger Games, Mockingjay, so? <laughs> and the one afterwards. Yes, it's all happening. Yeah, uh, it's all happened. Um, are you comfortable in it now? Do you do you feel like, hey, this is what I am. I'm 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 here. Do you still feel like it could no, go away? No, it's shifting. It's shifting. What I want now is different than what I wanted a few years ago. So. Do right. we, now you have a show you created no, along show, with Lee Daniels. With this this will probably be up the first week in January, the second week in January. Your new show is just coming on the air. It's January seventh, Empire. Empire, starring Terrence Howard and Lee Daniels, and I created it together. And but you know, it's sort of what we were talking about before, which is all these experiences shift what you want. I mean, there was a period where what I thought I wanted to be was David Kep, who is basically one of the biggest screenwriters in town, and he does all the biggest movies, and he's this incredibly talented. He's, and he's a great, great guy. He did the, the brilliant big. thing of casting me in a movie, so did I he? love that guy. So, Premium Rush, absolutely. So, there you go. No, he's my good buddy. I love him. He's uh, the best in the business. Yeah, yeah, know. and I thought I want to be, that's, that's what I think I want to be, and I wanted to do tentpole movies, and then I got hired on two of the biggest franchises, the Da Vinci Code franchise and the Hunger Games franchise. And I spent two years writing a Da Vinci Code movie and two Hunger Games movies. And at the end of those two years, it was so clear to me, this is definitively what I don't want. And I just thought this is, I was wrong. These are not the kind of movies I'd go see necessarily, if you're you. And, and I'm servicing not my own creativity. I'm servicing so many other things. I mean, in the case of, of the Hunger Games films, they're so close to the book. They're so true to the book, and it leaves very little room for me to bring my own, own creative my expression. Own, my own creative expression. It's not my creative expression. It's Suzanne Collins' creative expression. And I'm just trying to translate that into filmic language. And so when that ended um, about a year and a half ago, it was another one of those, so what, like, this is not what I want. And I decided I want to write and I want to direct. And I wrote um, a movie for me to direct. And I also thought, well, what else do you want? Well, I've always wanted to write a stage musical. So I wrote a rock musical. And those were my next two. And I didn't take a job for eight or nine months. And I wrote a rock musical. And I wrote um, a movie for me to direct. And now I'm trying to get that made. And then I wrote Empire with Lee. And was able to get to direct an episode of Empire, which was amazing. And that show, and, and the show was coming on the air. And the show was coming on the air. And so by you're, you've sort of made this decision that you've kept refining. But the central decision that you're... 
going to figure out what it is that you want to be doing creatively where you're not waiting for somebody else's phone call. Well, that's, that's the whole key, and that's why I was so why those two years I was so happy when I moved to New York and was not auditioning was that I was controlling uh, my own destiny for the first time right. since I was 15 years old. And it was amazing to learn, to have to relearn the lesson as a writer that I had to learn as an actor, which was it took me five years auditioning to realize I can't give them what they want. I have to bring my own creativity to it. And as a writer, it took me five years to figure out I can't be writing what I think the studios want to buy. I need to write what I want to express the movies I want to see. And um, so that ultimately, that's 10 years in two different fields of, of what it took to, for me to figure out what to do to start to um, move forward. Well, yeah, I mean, that is just what it takes. Um, I think the 10 years thing is arbitrary, you know, uh, that I did 10,000 hours or 10 years. But the, the, the sort of constant willingness to look at what you're doing and be open and honest enough with yourself to, to kind of recognize what you're feeling and then try to figure out how to change that. And then you just worked incredibly hard, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's the, the, the each time you kind of dove in fully. Well, I You weren't sitting around for five years um, uh, going, why didn't they buy my one comedy script? You wrote five comedy yeah, scripts. Yeah, yeah. Well, I find that I have consistently throughout my writing career been thrown into situations where I have no idea what I'm doing. And over and over again, where I literally, I just don't know what I'm doing, and I just try and figure it out. You know, in the case of writing Recount, I was writing a historical drama over subject matter that I have no insider knowledge of. And it was just, you just, just figuring it out. But I think that the thing, and, and I'm constantly working on multiple projects at once, which I, you do as well, don't you? Less than you do, I think. But, uh, I used, Dave and I used to do that more. Uh-huh. I don't like doing that. Uh-huh. I'd rather be able to, I'll be, I can produce something. I can be producing a movie and writing another movie and having another one in editing. Yeah. But I don't want to be writing more than one thing at yeah. the same time. Yeah. See, I need to have as many things going on that I can handle at once so that nothing – so that I've never stopped. Because I think it's that decade of waiting for the phone to ring scarred me. And I'm yeah. trying to avoid that in sort of every element of my life. No, I want to get – I just want to be able to live in the world that I'm creating at the time. If mm-hmm. I can now. I mean, it changes. I will. It, it, it shifts. And, yes, I can be kind of like making notes for something I'm going to write down the road. Mm-hmm. But if I'm really writing – like I – Dave and I tried to set up our lives that um, as we're going to make billions – that we can just only be thinking about this mm-hmm. the best that we can. You know what I mean? We have, but that's I a go to, uh, show. You should be doing that. We're making that. a pilot. Yeah, because yes, you're a, going, though. You know, like when something's going, it's like everything's different. Yes, that's true. Because you're going to shoot that thing. Well, yes, very soon. So, yeah. okay, we can do part two of this where we talk about sort of the rest of your life here living in New York. But I just want to say your story is super inspiring, Dan. Is it? And I think it's inspiring to people because your story is one of um, – you constantly reframing what other people call like failures as just um, lessons and ways to reshape what you're doing. And you never like, you know, you it never n- ends. It literally right. never ends of figuring out even just doing Empire now because Empire, Lee and I co-wrote it. We hired a showrunner, but I'm on the show. I've worked on it essentially full-time, working with the showrunner and Lee. And through that experience, I've learned so much, and it's focused me on what I want and what I don't want. 
based on the last five months. So then you'll know what the next show. I'll know the next show. The next what, what I, how I want well, that I'm to be. I'm rooting so hard for that show because one of my really good friends, Malcolm Spellman, not just you, but another one of my really good friends, Malcolm Spellman, is in the writing room with yeah, you. He's, he's one of the fantastic. greatest guys in the world. Terrific. And his episode 105 that John Singleton directed is terrific. Gangbusters. Well, that's great. I'm gonna ma- so now that Malcolm got a, a shout out, he's going to have to listen to this uh, episode. <laughs> Danny, where are you on social media if people want to find you? Oh, I'm at, at Danny Strong for Twitter. At Danny Strong on Twitter. You on Instagram? Yeah, I'm on Instagram, Strong Danny. Is your Instagram game tight? Uh, it's getting better. All right, all good. Of this, all of this is getting better. Good. Uh, you can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. Email me uh, at the moment BK at gmail.com. Only don't uh, send me any screenplays or screenplay ideas or I'll throw them in the trash and um, send people to your house to burn it. Um, but otherwise, send me anything you want. Danny, thanks for doing this, Thank man. You, buddy. This is super fun. It was a blast. And uh, yeah, you're a constant inspiration to me. I um, can't wait to see what the next five years are going to bring for Thank you. Thank you. Uh, me, me too. Thank you for listening to Grantland. To hear more Grantland shows in your earballs, subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes. Or go to grantland.com and click on podcast.